At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I'm here to introduce you to a bonus episode of Real Blend, an interview that we did with Elijah Wood on behalf of his new film, No Man of God. I was not able to join the boys for this one. Uh, I was coming back from CinemaCon, and you'll hear on the show where I discuss a lot of the footage that we were able to see as part of the major studio panels, but we got some time with Elijah Wood uh, following up on the conversation we had with his director, Amber Seeley, which you should check out as well, too, once you've seen No Man of God. Uh, but once you get Elijah Wood, there's so many things in his filmography that we could dive into and Kevin and Jake uh, obviously pick apart Lord of the Rings uh, his time on the set of Back to the Future uh, the Back to the Future franchise which maybe you guys didn't know that he was involved in has a really good story to tell from that and then of course um, playing one of the agents uh, who interviews Ted Bundy on behalf of that uh, in, uh, what, revolutionary innovative new program in terms of uh, agents who interview serial killers to find out some stuff about their patterns and maybe put that uh, knowledge to work to help track other serial killers. Boy, that's not easy to say. So without further ado, The Real Blend Conversation with Elijah Wood on behalf of his new film, No Man of God. <laughs> Quick technical note before I send you off to the interview. We lose Jake about halfway through, just some connection issues I wanted you to be aware of before he kind of disappears and doesn't return. Kevin is a pro though. He takes over, finishes the interview strong for us. So I will get out of your way now and let you enjoy this interview with Elijah Wood. Well, first of all, congratulations on the film. It's an honor to have you on our show. I've been doing this job for 15 years. I've never spoken to you before, so it's an honor to uh, have you. And I'm so fascinated by character choices uh, in terms of the way we are introduced to your character while he's combing his hair in front of the mirror, the way he puts his shirt on, the way he prays. And, and then obviously later on when we see Ted Bundy's face for the first time, it's through your arm, which is so cool. So I wanted to yeah. ask you about character choices like that, what those mean to you. And they, th those are the first times we interact with your character. So what, what does that mean for you as an actor to give that to the audience? Sure. Um, I mean, in this case, because there are so few um, moments of isolated character moments for Bill Hagmeyer in the movie, 
those moments were really important. Um, so much of the film takes place in the prison um, in conversation with Ted Bundy. And, and that is really the, 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 the crux of our story. But it's also about what's happening to Bill internally, emotionally, psychologically, as he's spending this time with this person. Um, is it happening, having an effect on him? So those moments, those kind of moments of his private time were paramount in articulating who this person was, what his, what the, you know, what are, what are his feelings as, a, as he's about to approach this, this meeting, this first meeting with Ted Bundy. Um, so all of that is, is extremely important because we, we, the real estate with that was so, so small. <laughs> so it's, it's it, you know, the, those moments, I suppose in any, in any other film that we might have more time to flesh that kind of stuff out and we didn't with this. So those sort of like him combing his hair and putting his shirt on and praying has a little bit more weight to it yeah. to, you know, articulate something. What is happening to him internally? You know, is there a sense of preparation for something? You know, what, what are we trying to project? And a lot of it was just, what is the internal life of this character? The thing about Bill too is, and I, I, I did speak to Bill and, and he um, very much availed himself to uh, Amber Seeley, our director and to the production as a whole in terms of just being there for information and, and anything that we would ever need, which was an incredible resource. He was great for, um, for Luke as well, playing Ted. He had a lot of questions. Um, but the, the thing about Bill is that he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, a, a, as a great FBI profiler agent would be, he doesn't necessarily indicate what's happening to him emotionally. There's, yeah. a, there's a sense of, of, you know, certainly openness to want to receive another person and to have a connection with another person, which I think is what makes him so good at his job. He really is quite disarming in that I think he he doesn't come in with a sense of an agenda. He really does want to understand and I think gives a sense of um, open humanity towards the subject and not that without judgment. Yeah, I like how he hold his, held his hands too like this, which was cool. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it, but again, he's he's also not an easy person to read. Mm. <laughs> so so it was important for us to inject a sense of an emotional journey uh, onto Bill. So again, using those moments, those in-between moments as opportunities to sort of showcase some kind of journey that he's going on. <laughs> yeah, super, so, super important. Elijah, expanding on that idea, I feel like sometimes uh, as an audience with, with films like this, whether they're, they're fiction or nonfiction, we tend to gravitate toward the serial killer. We want to see Bundy or Hannibal Lecter sure. or the killers in, in Mindhunter. Uh, sure. But all of these projects have shown that the other side of the table, the investigators and the agents, can be just as interesting, if not more so. So I'm sure. sort of curious, as an actor, how do you take your character and make sure that they're just as captivating and interesting and that they don't get overshadowed by the killers themselves? Sure. I mean, I, I think I wasn't so concerned about the overshadowing, but more just, well, look, the, the, the framework of the movie are these conversations and these conversations happened. They were real conversations. Um, some of the, the actual dialogue is based on transcripts and all of it's based on recollections of Bill. That's pretty, pretty accurate. So a lot of a lot of my job, the task was to make that come to life in as dynamic a way as possible, because it is also, you know, it's a film that 
the structure of the movie is sort of based on these series of conversations and and need and and needing there to be dynamics within the context of that otherwise there's it could be banal and is you want to always have people's attention um and for it to drive something that it has to go somewhere um so for us it was it was about looking at that the the structure of those scenes and those conversations and working out what's being said what's being said subtextually mm. um you know both characters are kind of playing a role to a certain degree ted is absolutely putting on a face but so is bill yeah. you know and so it's working out what those things are so there was a, it, there was more analysis than i'm than i've done in a while actually just because there was a sort of structure and then wanting to work out what that structure was going to be to where when we did sit down and we were were on set we kind of had the scaffolding built we knew sort of how that was going to play and then we could kind of play within that structure a little bit um but yeah i mean the 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 sort of importance for me was that there was a sense of agency to bill um a sense of there being a central I suppose the question that's posed very early on, which kind of becomes the thesis of the movie in a way, which is this could could a normal person commit these acts, mm. which is the you know what Ted wants to believe, I think, because if he if he believes if that is true, then he's not crazy um, and he's not a psychopath. He just chose to do this. And so that sort of is also what's driving Bill's experience through this is questioning whether or not he could do this um looking at the world through ted's eyes just inadvertently because of spending time with a person that way and and learning about what that person had done so just wanting to make sure that there was enough uh yeah i suppose agency within the context of the character that he's also he's also at in the driver's seat as well despite the fact that he may not it may not appear that way from ted's perspective because if ted were to smell that he he was trying to control the situation. Um, obviously, the tables would be turned, you know. For sure. You know, going back to character choices, this is actually really interesting. Um, the, when I was watching the film, Robert Patrick's character, he's so great in the film. And I was actually yeah, speaking great. with him recently. And one of the things that he, I told him I was talking to you for the film, and this mm -hmm. was actually something I wrote down before he even said this. I said, I wrote down the flossing um, that the character does in that one scene. And he said, ask Elijah um whose whose idea that was to do the flossing in that scene and whether or not robert patrick was actually really flossing his teeth in that scene is there some story there about that um i don't know if it's a story but it was amber's idea um our director so amber a, a big she loves she loves actors and she really did create such an incredible environment for all of us to be creative and to try things um especially luke and i in those scenes, in those interview scenes, because we would only ever shoot one a day because they're so long. Oh, wow. We had all this space. Occasionally we would do two, but they would be smaller pieces. So most of the time we had a full day for that one whole scene and they're long, mm -hmm. like over 10 pages. So she would really kind of create an environment to be free and to try things. And she would throw things at us all the time yeah. that maybe would seem that would be discordant or wouldn't sort of make sense functionally within the context of the scene, but, but would, would elicit really interesting, different responses. Yeah. And, and it was fun. It was really fun to be challenged in that way and to try, just try things, even things that felt random. 
And so she really loved that. And I think thrived on, and we did too, thrived on sort of just the opportunity to try different things that things that we wouldn't, hadn't even occurred to us. And another thing that she really likes is, is in scenes for actors to just be doing something Hmm. that it, it doesn't feel like a sort of static, you know, person sits down conversation, person stands up, it's over. So just wanting there to be, is there something else we can find that you're doing that just make, gives it a little bit more energy in life. And that, that flossing was, was her idea of that scene, just having, having him, having his character floss at the beginning of it uh, for no good reason beyond it just being something that he's doing. And the scene doesn't become about the flossing. It's just sort of a, a physical act that, that, you know, kind of keeps the scene on its toes, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It speaks to who he is, too, I would argue. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Elijah, this, this might be a stretch, and I hope you don't tap out of this podcast when I ask this question, but I wanted to compare this movie in a way to The Good Son, because in a, in a weird way, like in both films, you're kind of going toe-to-toe with a psychopath. And I was just sure. wondering, at any point, did you ever think of The Good Son while filming, and, or, or were there any experiences filming the two that were comparable at all, or am I just crazy for making this comparison in the first place? Well, I see what you're making. <laughs> no, I see the comparison you're making, uh, and it's a logical one. It didn't occur to me um, while we were making the film, but I definitely, I, I, you know, yes, I see. It is, it is a movie where the two central characters are on one side of evil, I suppose, sure. right? Mm. Um, and the other is sort of contending with the the sort of psychopathy of the other. Um, but no, it it, <laughs> hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me. Fair uh, enough. Uh, that's terrifying. That's a terrifying film, by the way. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is scary. It I is will scary. never get over that bridge scene with the dog. I mean, that that is that that's still to this day. That's honestly been haunting me for <laughs> decades now since I saw that film. It's terrifying. Oh, but, oh yeah. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly, and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know, sure. I've always wanted to ask you this. My wife and I were recently watching uh, the Back to the Future films on 4K. Um, and oh, nice. while, while I know your role is small in the second film, it's got to be incredible to think that that was your first feature film debut. 
Um, yeah. You're being directed by Robert Zemeckis, one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And I just wanted to know what your memories were. I'm sure you, I'm sure you've discussed the film before, but what were your memories yeah. of just shooting that scene? But did you take anything from Zemeckis? I mean, what a what a crazy cool thing to have been a part of, and it's so iconic. What do you remember about that and taking things from Zemeckis from that film? Man, it was incredible. Um, I don't un, unfortunately. I remember. Um, I remember Michael j fox well because i had the scene with him i don't really remember zemeckis i was young i was eight so i mean i i I didn't take anything away from it because my sophistication at that point in terms of you know uh, of what a director does and certainly what his career is um Mm. was really kind of in its infancy (laughs) truly genuinely so i i yeah i didn't take anything away from him specifically but he was great from my memory and 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 generous and kind and i felt um the environment was fun uh you know michael j fox was lovely like i have good memories if albeit slightly foggy of like the actual work itself what stands out is walking around the sort of that hill valley central downtown area oh wow that i knew so well from the first film so you know, I'm walking around with my mom and, and it's all been dressed as the future. So I, there's a, there's these futuristic cars driving around and parked and the out the exterior of every building has this sort of futuristic um, new dressing on it. So that was wild because I had seen the original film and and understood the comparison, was able to go, holy fuck, that's the clock tower. But wow, the you know, the, the, the 1950s cafe is now the cafe 80s. Like, I was able to contextualize all of those things and that was mind blowing. And for a kid also to just walk into a set that felt so real. And that's a feeling that I still, I still get when I walk into a film set, you know, no matter how small that an art department can do that and create this sense of reality um, where you can sort of feel a sense of immersion is the is still the coolest thing in the world a backlot still gets me super excited there's just something so so magical about it um and sort of had that as as you know you know a first cinematic experience was is kind of insane truly mind-blowing and you know that those feelings haven't left me you know thank you for sharing that that's so cool to hear that man thank you oh yeah um, Elijah, I'm sure I'm the first person that's going to bring this up to you, but this is the 20th anniversary of yes. uh, Fellow. I know, I know, you probably have never heard that yet, <laughs> um, but but I do have to say that that Fellowship has has always been my favorite of the trilogy because I love all of you together. I love the dynamic of of the mm. Fellowship, and I was wondering mm. if you could talk to me on that sort of how different the first film was compared to the last two. With with the last two, for the most part, you were mostly with with Sean and Andy, yeah. and I was curious how that was different compared to the the experience you had with the entire group. Sure. Well, I mean, well, an important thing is that we shot, save for the first couple of months, which were primarily fellowship that we were shooting, everything else was out of sequence. So we, we started, we, when we came back from Christmas break, actually, anecdotally, this is kind of interesting. We started shooting in October of 1999, solely fellowship starting. Um, which was probably largely strategic just in terms of like, we'd spent all of our time together and preparation together. The four hobbits were together a lot in rehearsing. Um, and it was also, we were, we were starting in, in Wellington. And then we went down to the South Island for 
some shooting that would have been and and was um once the wet weather had gone away uh shooting of of the sort of end of fellowship of the ring so uh the the big orc battle um uh boromir being killed the the hobbits being separated all of that was shot outside of queenstown but we were when we first got there, there was a rainstorm that flooded a lot of our sets and washed them away. So we had to shoot wet weather cover and our wet weather cover was a scene from Return of the King. <laughs> really? And we hadn't even, I hadn't even thought about what that was going to be or what, where Frodo was, was mentally and emotionally at that stage because I, I felt like I had the, the benefit of time to get to it. Um, anyway, we, we shot that day, it was, it was a whirlwind, and we actually didn't finish that scene for another year, which is crazy. Um, but then after that, when we came back from Christmas break, we, did, we, got, we went to Bag End and Hobbiton, and then we were shooting out of sequence, and we were shooting every film. So the, the feeling of shooting Fellowship was always extraordinary because of that group dynamic. And, and Specifically for me, it was getting to spend time with the four hobbits as a unit, which was so lovely. We, we all were so close. Um, being, you know, with Vigo and Sean Bean and uh, Orlando, like having that whole unit and working together on some of those sequences was just always thrilling. And we most of the fellowship stuff was shot in earlier days so there there was some cohesion to that um but yeah i i, I like you share a, a a specific love for fellowship of the ring as well uh as a film um there is something about that fellowship the connection that they share the kind of cohesion of that journey the start of that journey that, that then splinters off and becomes so many different things from the two towers on. And I love those movies too. And they're incredible and they're dynamic and super emotional. And, um, but there is something really magical about the fellowship of the ring that is so, so beautiful. And, and I, can, I think, yeah, remains to be my favorite of, of the three films. Elijah, I, um, I wanted to ask you this question for, I guess 20 years now. Uh, I've never spoken to you before and I'm a big fan of filmmaking and forced perspective and the way that that, oh, sure. that, uh, that Peter Jackson used that. And this is something I've always wanted to ask you in terms of the way you would sit next to or stand next to Ian McKellen and yeah. the way they made it look like you were so much smaller than him in terms of... The, I, I read stories that they would like dig holes and actors would stand in them and that would help the help shorten the character or like... But can you talk about the forced perspective that was used in order to create yeah. that, whether it was the cameras and the lenses and kind of how that was done because it's, it just blows my mind to this day. Oh, it's incredible. And it's one of the oldest tricks in the book, you know? It's, we, they really did go back to basics in terms of film trickery. Um, that, you know, tricks that have been used for a hundred years, which is really wonderful. Um, and so, yeah, I, I suppose the, the example that I'm, is my most favorite and is, is sort of the most effective and longest in the film, um, in Fellowship, is Frodo and Gandalf at the dinner table in the kitchen of Bag End, uh, as Gandalf is telling him about the ring and there's this sort of long conversation over tea. 
And that was fully forced perspective. So we did share that room. We were in the same space. The table was split into two sizes. Um, one that that Gandalf, so Ian would sit at and one that I would sit at. Wow. Um, and the table would move according to the camera movement to keep that perspective the same. So it was on a, a motion control camera. So as the camera panned, also the table would move <laughs> and shift to wow. maintain that perspective so it was never broken. It's really incredible. And you could see that in camera. So we could look at a, at a take in the monitor and, and it, 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 the, the, the trick was sold. There was nothing that we had to do. So I was just sat at you know one side and he was sat sort of here and I would look at a tennis ball and he would look at a tennis ball and we would interact. It was really, really incredible. And I think he had smaller props on his table so that his hands looked larger and he was, you know, he took up much more space and the props on my table or my side were normal size. So that would also help with um, making sure that, that that trick hadn't been broken. It's really amazing. That, that, that and the, um, the cart too, the, the, the scene when Frodo jumps on the cart, that, that first shot. Oh, the Howard um, Shore score in that moment. Oh, God, it's so... <laughs> so right after you're late, you see a wider shot of Frodo jumping onto Gandalf. That was my scale double, Kieran Shaw. He jumps on to, 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 and hugs um, Gandalf. And then the next shot you see is the two of them sitting, talking about, you know, the fireworks and, and you know, catching up about Bilbo and all of that as they're winding through the, the path. And that shot or that series of shots was also, that was forced perspective. So there was a cart that had been like bifurcated or whatever, where, you know, um, Ian was sitting in the front and I was sitting sort of in the back, but the camera was again at a certain angle that it made it look like we were sitting side by side, carrying on a conversation. Um, yeah, just a joy. We did use one trick that didn't end up getting employed again. It only showed up, I think, once in the film. In The Prancing Pony in Brie, as I check in, as, so as the hobbits are sort of huddled at that front desk, and we're checking in, and I'm, I, I remember I have to check in on our different name. I can't be Baggins, because I'm being looked for, and we're, so we have to hide. So I check in as Underhill. As I do that, two, two characters pass, or one character passes and another character passes. They were bigotures, and not bigotures, sorry. They were, what do they call them? They were... There were people in suits. They had a name for it, but they were basically large suits with giant arms and giant hands that people were operating wow. to be to to help with the sense of scale of us against the set, which was oversized for us as we're trying to like peer over this front desk. And then these people in these like stilt suits with giant arms and hands walk by us. And they had planned on using those more and ultimately they, they proved not to be as effective. So that was just used in that one shot, but they were rad in that shot. It looks awesome. That's amazing. Right, I'm going to bring it back to No Man of God because this is something I was interested in uh, when I was watching the film. And I know you have to, you have to hard out, so this will be our last question. But okay. I, I was so focused on the camera work in this film. Like every single angle, the way it was edited together, like 
there was almost a claustrophobic feeling sometimes when you were in the room, but I was very mm. focused on hands. Um, there was these great shots of like Ted's hands, your wedding ring, his wedding ring, which almost made you kind of equals in that sense, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. But there yeah. was when you would press play on the recorder, I would kept wondering, was that really rolling? Like, did was that tape recorder actually recording what you guys were doing? And did is that is that somewhere now? Did you guys actually roll on uh, that? That would have been awesome. No, oh, <laughs> unfortunately. <is it? laughs> Oh, that would have been so rad if we had like endless hours of tapes of 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 our scenes yeah. together. That'd be kind of amazing. Uh, no, we didn't re- we didn't record on any of that, so it was never practical. I mean, it ran, um, but we weren't actually recording. I I mean, actually, come to think of it, the record button was on. It did work. Uh oh. I wonder if the lost wonder, tapes. <laughs> I wonder. I actually wonder. And I, I didn't occur to me at the time, but we did have to press the record button. I mean, if it was ever in frame, you know, those two buttons, the play and record, were always pressed at the same time and it was operating. Hmm. So conceivably, that could be the case. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I just love the use of hands, the way it was shot. And just again, back to the character elements of it, Every, it spoke really well. We were constantly trying to, Amber's intent with our DP was to always get as many little bits and pieces as possible mm. so that in the editing room, there was, there was room to play. There was, there was material and, and her focus was just, you know, close-ups, just, you know, macro shots of, to your point, hands, um, you know, the, the feet and shackles. Um, yeah, just that was so cool like, when they would zoom in on the, on the shackles. That was such an intense so cool. thing, man. Yeah, I know. I really love that, too. It just adds this beautiful texture to the film, for yeah. sure. I'm being told I have a time for one more question, so I'm going to throw this Here out to you, but just in general. I find it interesting how fascinated we are with serial killers. And I, oh. I, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, it's interesting because we pay almost more attention to serial killers than we do the actual victims in, in terms oh. of, like, movies and shows. And I always found that to be an interesting psychological thing in terms of the way we, cons- way we consume entertainment but also watching stories like this i'm just curious from your perspective why do you think we are so interested because when i saw the title of this film and what it was about i was all in immediately i couldn't wait to see this film and then i watched it and i was in in it the entire time i was so immersed in it i was i felt like i was in that room to a point where i actually thought that they were the real people i thought that was really ted bundy and you know it was it was really wow. it got to a point where i believed that i was watching the actual people and i just wonder oh, like what, what what you feel about in terms of why we're so deeply fascinated by this and i think a lot of it comes across in the questions you ask him in the film like in, in the interview style that you're asking him well i mean i think humans are always going to be fascinated by the dark realm that they don't understand. Mm. And I think that goes back to just human nature. And I think we've been fascinated with it for centuries. Um, But I think, you know, as it pertains to serial killers, certainly in the 20th century, which really does feel like a kind of thing that has emerged within the context of the 20th century. um, It's, I think it's just fascinated with the psychological mechanism that we don't understand. You you know, most of us, thankfully, can't relate to someone being capable of those sorts of heinous acts, that kind of violence. And it, I think it's fascinating to us to un- try and understand what it is about someone's internal brain mechanism that makes, it, makes them capable of doing that. Um, and then as it pertains to Ted Bundy specifically, who tends to 
get a lot more attention than most serial killers. I think with Ted, it's because there is there is a perception, I think, largely with serial killers that they they aren't necessarily successful members of society. Um, Ted kind of breaks all these weird rules. Yeah, like, a psychology degree. It was cr- it's crazy. He's a, yeah, exactly. He's attractive. Um, he has a psychology degree. He was studying to be a lawyer. He worked in local politics. He worked at a at a crisis helpline to help people, you know, from from committing suicide. Like he he has he had this double life that was very successful, that made it so so successful that people in his life believed that he was incapable of doing the things that he was accused of and i think that's why we always come back to him and why he more than most is so fascinating it's just simply because he it 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 kind of breaks our brain because he's not he's not like Dahmer, who was sort of a shut-in and kind of quiet and kept to himself or like so many of them um that weren't necessarily healthy members of society and he was um and he was also very charismatic and a fascinating person to watch because he also was filmed a lot. You know, he was the, 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 there's so much footage of, of his trial of him, uh, him acting as, a, as his own lawyer, which is <laughs> crazy. And the hubris there is insane. Um, you know, that, that's also interesting. There's a lot of material to draw from of watching someone kind of go through something that maintained his innocence despite the fact that it was so clear that he was guilty. And it's just, it's, it's, it's like a train wreck. It's fascinating to watch that kind of thing, I think. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you very much. This has been an absolute honor. I literally grew up with your films. I remember seeing Radio Flyer destroyed me as a kid. It still does now. And uh, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done for cinema. Thank you for letting us talk about some of your other films as well. And congratulations on this movie. And it is truly an honor to speak with you. And you're such a fascinating guy. And it's nice, really cool to hear you, your details about your characters and your specifics that you go into. It just shows you really care about what you do. And obviously, so thank you very much, Elijah. It is an honor to have you on the Real Blend podcast. Thank you so much. This has been a, a real pleasure, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, bro. Have a great day and hope you're having yeah, have hope a good weekend. safe. Yeah, you too. All right. Same to you. Take care. Thanks. We want to thank Elijah Wood for coming on to talk about his new film. One thing you guys should check out, too, because we had Sean Astin on the show. And if you search Sean Astin and um, Real Blunt, it'll be a little one-two punch of, uh, of Lord of the Rings talk. With, uh, with the Real Blend hosts. So definitely make sure you guys are checking that out. Uh, we also have uh, an exciting interview on behalf of the MMA film Warrior that Gavin O'Connor directed. So that film is turning 10 years old. Uh, and it was fun on social media. After we talked to Gavin, I was putting things out there and hearing from a lot of people who love that film. Love that film as much as the three of us do. Uh, and it's a great opportunity for us to really go back and revisit. Jake made a joke about the fact that um, we interviewed him for... Uh, the Ben Affleck basketball film that he made, uh, No Way Back. And at the end of that one, we kind of had to like sneak in warrior questions because we just love that film so much. So to get him specifically talking about that film is, uh, is a great conversation and, and he turned into a, a really informative talk about that movie. So we also have a, uh, whew, one is happening very, very soon. Uh, it's a, one of those hashtag if it happens and, uh, someone we've been teasing for a bit on the show. So, um, Knock on wood, the minute it happens, we'll we'll talk about it on social media and you guys will be the first ones to hear about it. But um, yeah, 
you know, cross your fingers and do everything you can to help us land these amazing interviews and bring them to you guys. Um, here on our YouTube channel, if you guys are following us along on the visual component of it, make sure you hit like and subscribe. We love to see the fact that we crossed over 4,000 uh, subscribers. That's fantastic. Thank you guys so much for your support every single week coming over here to watch the uh the video aspects of the Roblin podcast. If you're listening where you get your audio podcast needs met, give us a follow, maybe write us a review, and we'll read it on the show. So uh, we'll be back with a lot more content, some more bonus episodes like this, and plenty more Real Blend here at Cinema Blend. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.